This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to journalist Colin Freeman and he's going to be telling us everything we needed to know about armed piracy, so militancy on the seas. Not always political militancy, but militancy for financial gain, conflict nonetheless. Colin himself was actually kidnapped by pirates at one point and he's been covering this beat for years. He knows about the paramilitaries that help out the sailors. He knows about the pirate groups that give kickbacks to militant, sometimes jihadist groups. He's going to explain it all to us. If you like what we're doing here, please consider supporting Popular Front at patreon.com slash popularfront. Maybe just give us an idea of where global piracy is at at the moment. Well, as of about 10 years ago, uh, when I first started uh, covering piracy, it was mainly off the coast of Somalia and extending out into the Indian Ocean. Um, uh, and there was a lot of hijackings between the years of about 2008 to 12. Uh, then after that, the Somali piracy pretty much got stamped out, and it was pretty simple as to why. Uh, most of the ships that were sailing in the Indian Ocean at the time uh, eventually just decided that they were going to start carrying armed guards, and that pretty much stamped the problem out there. Um, the reason they hadn't done prior to that was because insurers were generally a bit... Uh, wary of having armed guards on ship. They were worried about legal um, ramifications if uh, someone got killed uh, and also problems about people coming at different ports carrying weapons and so on and so forth. Um, so the Somali piracy has pretty much died out, but where it is now big is off the coast of West Africa. Um, Somalia being at east, the, on, on the, the, the east side of Africa, for those of you, uh, you listeners who aren't that familiar with the geography. Um, uh, it, it's, it's resurged in West Africa, not quite at the same level, but very much the same business model of uh, attacking ships and increasingly taking the crew hostage rather than just robbing the ship. Um, it's not it's not quite as bad as what we see in Somalia at the moment, but it's certainly on the rise. It's got a lot of people worried within the shipping industry. Maybe maybe give us an idea then of what actually like what does piracy actually entail? It's not just jumping on board ships and stuff like that. There's a lot more to it. Um, what what is piracy then in in 2021? Well, in the old days, if you imagine your sort of classic pirates of old, you you know you. Blackbeards and Captain Teaches from the, you know, the, the Elizabethan period, cruising around the Caribbean or wherever, uh, you would imagine them typically uh, getting on a ship and basically robbing the crew uh, or forcing them to join the, um, the, the pirates themselves or just killing them and then nicking whatever treasure they had on board. What has changed these days, certainly and this is very true since Somalia, was that um, the, uh, the, the, the pirates didn't tend to rob the ships. That was not the main thing, robbing the ship of the cargo. Partly because if you, you, know, if you board a big tanker carrying perhaps 100,000 tons of cement or something like that, um, you know, who are you going to sell 100,000 tons of stolen cement to? It's not that easy. What they do instead is they 
they take the crew hostage. And um, once you've got a crew hostage, especially if you're floating off the coast of somewhere like Somalia, which 10 years ago was certainly pretty lawless, nobody is going to come and try and interfere. There's no, there was no functioning police or Navy or Coast Guard off the Somali coast. So once you've got um, your, uh, your, the, a crew of sailors and you've got guns pointed at their head, you can demand a ransom and uh, pretty much no one is going to be able to interfere with that. So that's the essential difference really is that in the modern day piracy is a lot more about stealing people, um, taking hostages rather than just stealing cargo. You know, robbery will take place as well. They will um, rob crews of their possessions and valuables if there's anything worth nicking. But the real money is in the ransoms. And during the Somali piracy crisis, for example, the ransom started off at a few hundred thousand dollars and gradually they went up and up and up until the last few ships that got hijacked, you know, they were getting ransoms of anything up to 10 or 12 million dollars at a time, which is a lot of money. Jesus, yeah, that is a lot of money. I mean, even 100,000 in Somalia is, you might as well be a millionaire, you know what I'm saying? Um Who is paying these ransoms? Like, how are they managing to be this successful with it? Well, in the in the case of the Somali piracy 10 or 15 years ago, um, they were targeting where they could um, international shipping, um, you know, ships that were insured, um, you know, owned by European or American uh, or Asian businesses. And most of them, not all of them, but most of them had what's known as kidnap and ransom insurance, which means that if your ship gets taken, uh, it gets hijacked, um, an insurer will step in and once the ransom is paid, the insurer will reimburse the cost of the ransom. So, for example, if you, um, you know, uh, if, if your, say your ship, your ship owner from Denmark, for example, your ship gets hijacked, um, you will normally have the insurer, your insurers will, um, will get involved. They will appoint a professional hostage negotiator and that person will negotiate a ransom with the pirates is a bit of quite a lot of bargaining haggling basically the pirates start off at maybe demanding 10 or even 20 million uh the insurers say no way well they'll offer a fraction of that and they meet somewhere in between but the it, it, essentially the 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 money is paid by the insurer although not up front what they do is they reimburse the cash once the employer has already, the owner has already paid it out. So how do they actually get this money then to the pirates? It's not like they go, here's my PayPal, you know, throw us over a cheeky one mil. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's obviously some kind of procedure. How does that all happen? Well, it, 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 it varies. I mean, in the old days, sometimes, yeah, they would, they would be given a, the, the, the owners would be given the number of a bank account somewhere often in the Middle East or Someone like that, a numbered bank account, and you just send the money there. Really, you know, some wow. juris some jurisdiction where people were not going to ask too many questions, but uh, that I think was relatively rare. More often, what would happen is that um, the money would be delivered in cash um, to the pirates um, on the ship, um, and so sometimes it would be delivered by a boat. Uh, uh, sometimes, more often, it would be delivered by an airdrop. You'd get a, a small plane flown by a bush pilot, um, usually people from mainly South Africans and Kenyans, people like that, would fly over the plane and drop the money in a, you know, in a suitcase or a hold-all, 
um, uh, with via a parachute, same kind of parachute people use for base jumping, stuff like that normally. And they would drop it on or near the plane, and the pirates would shoot out and pick it up. Um, and that, that's that's generally how the, the majority of ransom drops were done. The people who would be supervising this are usually ex-military guys, often from Britain or South Africa or the US, and um, you know who are experienced in working in these, you know, in in, in hostile environments, um, and they would usually charge a pretty penny for their um, their services. Uh, quite often, things did go wrong, but um, generally speaking. That was that was the way that um, the, the the ransoms were dropped. Right, that is fascinating. And what kind of people are the pirates? Like this sounds like a whole network. It seems like a business. Who is it? Who, who are these pirates generally? Well, if you the, the piracy really started in about I think the, the first reports of it were in the very late nineties or the early two thousands. And the, the, the story goes that uh, at that time, Somalia, because it hadn't had a government then since, uh, since about 1991, after the, uh, the collapse of the then government, which was a, uh, a Soviet-backed government and their authority disappeared when the Soviet Union collapsed, basically, mm. and the country lapsed into civil war. Um, one of the uh, side effects of that was that um, uh, there was no policing of Somalia's coastline at all, which meant that the uh, the fish stocks there, which are very rich, lots of tuna and other uh, other fish, uh, were open to anybody to come and poach. And so there was an increasing problem with um, vessels from Asia and Europe um, coming in and just helping themselves to all Somalia's fish, um, or a lot of it. Uh, this annoyed some of the local fishermen um, who felt that their stocks were being poached. And so the local fishermen formed the, the what they used to call their own coast guards, which basically sort of militia groups that would go out on boats, usually on little motorized skiffs, and they would attack these poaching uh, foreign vessels uh, as and when they saw them, usually just going aboard, robbing them and, you know, delivering a bit of on-the-spot justice, really. Um, uh, and they used to give themselves names. They would call themselves like the, you know, the, the Somali Coast Guard or the, um, you know, uh, um, Somali anti-poaching militia, various different names like that. Um, and that is sort of where it is said to have started off. And a kind of folk myth built up around these people that they were essentially Robin Hood type figures, you know, robbing from the rich to give to the poor just a sort of, you know, a, a bit of vigilante justice levied out on these um, uh, these poaching foreign fishermen. Um, however, uh, it, it, that, it soon got out of hand. Word got round that there was quite a lot of money to be made doing this. And gradually, a lot of other people, um, a lot, lot of other armed groups from Somalia uh, began to get in on the act. And um, within a matter of a few years, they weren't just attacking passing fishing vessels they were attacking basically any uh passing ship uh, that came within reach um hence they were attacking cargo vessels um oil tankers e even ships carrying food for the world food program you know aid that was actually destined for somalia would sometimes get attacked so the the, the sort of robin hood thing you know uh wore pretty thin fairly fairly soon yeah i, I can see that so 
Maybe just take us through like step by step, how do the modern day pirates actually go about their business? You know, from the shore to boarding the boat to then getting away. Like, how does that all happen? So it, 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 you, you use the word business. It is really like a business. You've mm. got that. You, you, you have various different towns up and down the Somali coast. Certainly, you know, 10, 15 years ago, places like Ale and uh, Haradere and Hobyo, to little isolated towns, not much more than villages, really, a long, long way from anywhere, um, you know, uh, you know, often a day or two's drive along a bumpy track. So very isolated places anyway. Um, and these would be the places from where the pirate gangs would go out in search of vessels. Um, and typically what would happen is that... Um, uh, some guy, you know, a clan chief or somebody like that, uh, or a militia, a, a, a leader of a local militia would say, well, I'm going to put together a, a hijacking venture. I need maybe 10, 15, 20 guys. Um, and then we need two or three skiffs, which are these little wooden sort of go fast boats with, you know, a couple of big, you know, high, you know, 120 horsepower engines on the back. Uh, and off they would go in search of, uh, in search of prey. And, some local investor would often put up the money to to send them out. You know, maybe the whole thing often used to only cost about maybe ten or you know ten thousand dollars for hiring the boat, the guys, the guns, and everything else. Um, and they would go off in search of ships for you know two or three days at a time. And if they caught the ship, if they hijacked one, which was basically a case of just sailing up to the Gulf of Aden, which is just on the northern coast of Somalia, um, then you know they would they would board a ship and uh, and they would be off. Um, one thing to point out is that the the area where Somalia is it's, it's a sort of Somalia is a, a kind of jagged is it's known as the Horn of Africa, which means it's got this sort of jagged triangle that sticks out into the Indian Ocean. It, it's got an enormous coastline of nearly two thousand kilometres, and um, uh, the Gulf of Aden, which is on the northern side is where, you know, a, a great deal of the world shipping passes through. So it's a, it's basically like being Dick Turpin, the highwayman, and being stationed on the M1. You know, it, it's you, you're perfectly positioned to prey on passing shipping. Um, and then, so when they got a ship in sight, they would, it was pretty simple, really. They would sail up two or three skiffs um, and they could easily outpace um, most, slow moving tankers or whatever. Uh, and then they would get up close to the ship and then they would uh, grab, get a big long grappling ladder, which is basically a you know, ladder sort of 10, 20 feet long, sometimes longer than that, with some hook, grappling hooks on the other side, on, on the top end. And they cruise up close to the ship, chuck that on the side and then clamber over pretty much like the pirates of old in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, it, uh, once they got on board, uh, two or three guys with weapons, then that's pretty much it over. Right. And they, they, they jump on board. What kind of weapons do these groups have? Like, how are they able to just overpower everyone? Like, well, you'd usually have, uh, if say you had three skiffs attacking a ship at one time, uh, you'd have maybe say three or four guys on each ship, uh, on, on each skiff rather. Um, each with a Kalashnikov, then one or two with a rocket-propelled grenade launcher as well, 
I don't think the, the RPGs were necessarily um, that effective, but if you're, uh, you know, cruising, um, if, if you're the captain of an oil tanker, for example, and you see someone firing an RPG at you, you know, a, a bloody big missile, uh, you know, you're going to be pretty scared that it's going to blow up your boat. So the, the RPGs are probably there more for fear factor than anything else. Um, but then once they've got the guys on, on board, um, as I say, most of the crews in the old days were not armed. So as soon as you've got one or two men on board with AK-47s, pointing them at the crew, that, that's it, that's game over. The crew will generally just, you know, do what they're told. And the majority, in the majority of cases, their owners would be telling them, look, do, do, if, if this ever happens to you, do not put up any resistance. Just let the pirates take over and then we'll worry about what happens afterwards. So they're effectively militant groups on the seas, basically. Basically, yes. I mean, that didn't, ha didn't tend to have any political affiliations. Um, uh, it was always just about the money, and they were yeah. quite careful to, to to make that clear most of the time. Oh, they would, yeah. Yeah, th there was a reason for that. If they said, hey, we're doing this hijacking in the name of al-Shabaab or um, some sort of terrorist group, then that made it a lot more difficult for the shipping companies to pay out ransoms because the, th this isn't true of every country, but in most cases, paying a ransom to a criminal group is not illegal. Paying a ransom to a group like al-Shabaab uh, is, certainly if you're in Britain or the, or, or the US or anywhere else. So they were generally quite careful to say, no, we are just pirates, even if perhaps a bit of the money was occasionally going to some al-Shabaab group that might be controlling a part of the territory where they operated on. Right, that makes sense. Um, and how how successful were they? Like, were there anywhere they didn't get a ransom? Um, you know, and th then what happens? They were, they were pretty successful at what they did. Um, between 2008 and 2012 or so, which was really the peak years of the piracy crisis, they hijacked about 150 ships. Uh, I mean, they attacked a whole lot more than that, but, you know, their hit rate was maybe, uh, you know, one in four, one in ten or something. And they earned an estimated half a billion dollars in ransoms from those ships combined, which is, which is quite a lot of cash for a place um, as poor as Somalia was. Uh, we, we don't, we, no, nobody has exact figures because the, the, the shipping companies tend not to want to say how much was, um, was paid out, but th there was enough times when pirates themselves would film the ransom being dropped and then they would announce to all and sundry uh, how much they got because it was, it was you know, good for their, some, sometimes, you know, good for their image as pirates to, to show how much they were earning. But yeah, it was, it was a, a lot of money, yeah. No, definitely. Um, and what happens, though, if they don't pay? Like, have they actually, you know, they execute people? I, I remember speaking to some negotiators who worked for um, uh, some of the shipping companies, and th they generally said, what, what, one of the surprising things was that the, the Somali pirates were generally pretty businesslike. And there was, there was hag they would haggle over the amount that was going to be paid for the ransom. But once it was agreed, um, then that was it. You, you know, you paid the money up front and then you got your hostages back. And the negotiators who worked for the insurance companies and the shipping companies were surprised at that because a lot of them had previously worked in places like Latin America where they worked with drug gang, you know, dealing with drug gangs or, you know, kidnappers in that part of the world. 
and they said that the Somali pirates were surprisingly straightforward and easy to deal with. And they put that down, the Somalis just being quite smart business people and realizing that if they made it easy for a ransom to, you know, if, if a ransom was paid and then they handed the hostages over, that, then that was just encouraging the ship owners to take the, the path of least resistance. Because, you know, for most ship owners, you know, th these are Western business people sitting in places like Denmark or Holland or London. You know, paying ransoms is not normally part of their thing. And they just think that's just going to be chucking good money after bad. These guys are criminals. They won't give us the hostages back. But if word got round that the Somalis actually delivered on their side of the bargain, it became a much more attractive option than, say, just refusing to pay or hoping that the, some foreign navy would get involved or whatever. However, there were cases where um, the, uh, you know, the, the ransom didn't come forward for whatever reason. Occasionally, you would have ships, uh, ship owners who weren't properly insured. And yes, at that point, it did sometimes get nasty. Um, if think, the moment things didn't started not going the pirate's way, yeah, um, the, the, there was quite a lot of instances of torture, um, uh, you know, all, all kinds of unpleasant stuff, the sort of thing you would imagine, you know, used to happen on ships in the old days. Um, people getting dumped over the side of the vessel, you know, having their hands or legs tied up so that they couldn't swim, dangled in the water. Uh, people were getting uh, made to lie out on the deck for hours or days on end with no, no food or water. Uh, people just getting beaten up, roughed up, having their fingernails pulled out with pliers, uh, um, being shut in the ship's deep freeze for 45 minutes after being stripped naked. Um, yeah, there's some pretty unpleasant stuff going on. Um, this was generally towards the, once the piracy crisis was in full flow, I would say. It didn't happen very much in the early days, but I think the longer the piracy crisis went on, um, the, the more, the, the greedier some of the pirates got and the more pressure they tried to apply on some of the ship owners. And you also got some very ruthless operators moving into the business. Um, it, it, it sometimes reminded me of like, you know, old school mafias, um, uh, you know, where you've got men of honor who had certain codes of conduct versus newcomers who just didn't care what they you know what what they had to do as long as they got the money right yeah same old same old um you mentioned earlier about how like a lot of this got nipped in the bud when armed um groups would be on board the ships as well i've seen footage of like private military contractor groups firing back at pirates you know like kidnapping the pirates after they've got on board all sorts of madness um, explain to us how, how that all started happening. Yeah, so um, to start off with, 2008, the piracy crisis starts and, um, you know, you're getting crews taking hostage left, right and centre. Um, the insurers generally, though, did not want to get involved putting armed guards on ships um, because they were worried that if an armed guard shot a pirate uh, or shot, you know, somebody who was innocent, for example, then there would be all kinds of legal problems. Um, they, what they hoped was that the, this international anti-piracy force, um, which was dispatched to desert the area, would, would control the problem and eventually bring the pirates um, to, to, you know, to, to book. Um, three years in that, you know, the, the anti-piracy force 
wasn't really having that much of an effect. The, the area was just too bloody big. You know, you've got an area half the size of the Indian Ocean. It's several times the size of Western Europe. Um, uh, and the, the, the more the more ships got that got taken and the more violent the pirates got, the, the shipping industry basically sort of said, look, we, we, we can't rely on the, the navies to, to help us. We, we are going to have to have a rethink about armed guards and really that's what happened. And then, so come about 2012, um, armed guards started being put on a lot of the ships. The rules were changed um, amongst the insurers. So it, it was it was no longer problematic from an insurance point of view. Um, most of them, you know, ex-military, um, a lot of them have worked in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, Brits, Americans, people like that. And what they would normally do is they would um, stick a little machine gun nest, a sandbag machine gun nest at the end of a tanker uh, or here and there on a ship's deck. And it was actually pretty effective because um, uh, if they've got a, a group of Somali pirates coming towards them, bouncing around on a skiff on, on the waves on, in the ship's wake, uh, the pirates will find it very hard to shoot straight. Whereas the, you know, the Royal Marines or what ex-Royal Marines are on the ship, you've got a big tanker, it's very steady. It's basically like firing down from a fortress on a, on a target. It's very easy. So all they would normally have to do really is fire a few warning shots and that would be enough to get the pirates to go away. Right. But there have been um, kind of controversies around some of these private military contractor groups on board these ships, right? There's, there's been a few. I mean, there's, there's the odd bit of footage you see of um, groups of, uh, you know, of, of private military contractors shooting at people. Um, uh, it's often very hard to tell, really, whether why the people are there and whether they are genuinely pirates or just innocent fishermen who may have happened to stray too close. Um, uh, there's been one or two cases, I think, in Taiwan, um, a, a private military contractor was is, is currently going through the courts for for shooting people. I, I think equally, though, in that part of the world, um, out on the ocean where nobody can see you, uh, I think probably quite a lot of the time the feeling was if, if you did hit a pirate and um, uh, he was killed or injured, you know, who was going to ask too many questions? Who was going to find out? Yeah. Um, and what kind of groups, what kind of people end up, you know, on board these ships to protect them? Um, the, the ones I know, mainly ex, uh, you know, ex-military guys from Britain, um, uh, you know, usually ex-powers, ex-Royal Marines, people like that, people who've often got previous security experience working in somewhere like Iraq or Afghanistan uh, as a bodyguard or, um, or who have or have served in Iraq or Afghanistan in the military. Um, you know, there's a, there's a whole sort of industry of those sort of people um, uh, th these days. It's pretty much risen out of the, you know, out of the war on terror. Um, and um, they, they, around sort of the time the piracy crisis started, which is sort of 2008, they were finding it increasingly difficult to operate in places like Iraq. So, all of a sudden, there was quite a lot of spare manpower. Um, the, the other thing that made it easier for them, though, was that uh, they, they came up with this idea of floating armories. So you would have these little island, these little sort of um, 
floating, usually a boat um, floating somewhere in the middle of the Indian Ocean in international waters, uh, like, you know, just loaded to the gunnels with weaponry. And so a ship would, uh, before it was going into the pirate, you know, the, the area where the pirates operated, uh, a ship would stop there and um, the security guards on board would then stock up with their weapons at that point and then they would have them uh, for the duration of the journey through the pirate-plagued area and then they would stop at another floating armory at the other end and drop the weapons off. And what that did was it, it got around the problem of going in and out of different ports with weapons because every country has diff different paperwork for weapons uh, some allow people to be armed, some of them don't. I say probably the majority of them don't. And that made it very difficult for the ships because if they were in port and somebody was found to be carrying a weapon without the correct paperwork, the whole ship could get impounded and there'd be all sorts of legal problems. But if you had, as long as you had these floating armories out in international waters, you could carry the weapons, um, drop them off, and then there would be, be no difficulties in between. I think also in terms of shipping economics, you're talking about a ship that's maybe, um, you know, $50,000 a day running costs. You could buy three or four AK-47s for $250 each, and at the end of a journey of maybe three, three, three and a half weeks, you chuck them overboard if needs be. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, like, it's a pittance in comparison to the overall shipping economics. So that was kind of how they got got around the problem of not being allowed weapons. Yeah, these floating armories I've read about before. A friend of mine actually, um, he made a documentary about them. They're absolutely fascinating. Um, for, for our listeners, just to explain who is funding these floating armories. Like, how do you get permission to just have, you know, a floating armory? It just seems, it sounds mad. I'll be honest, I don't actually know, but most of them, as far as I'm aware, were private ventures. Um, uh, run by private security companies who, you know, often, as I said, often already got a foothold in places like Iraq or Afghanistan, staffed mainly by ex-British and ex-American or ex-South African military personnel. Um, and, um, I mean, they, they would, I think a lot of them would probably have a financial backer of some sort. And, I, yeah, I mean, it's a good question, you know, who on earth would allow anybody just to sit in the middle of the Indian Ocean with a boat loaded with weapons. I think they enjoyed the cooperation, either sort of tacit, unofficial or otherwise, of the international shipping industry, which wanted these people to be able to have these weapons. And they probably also tried to, you know, be as above board as possible. And they would have liaised with the different international navies and so on, to say, look, here we are, this is what we're doing. By all means, come and inspect us as you want. We would like you to know where, where we are because, you know, the last thing we want is a bunch of terrorists coming in, um, grabbing all the weapons. Uh, but if, if I'm absolutely honest, I'm, I'm speculating slightly as to sort of how exactly these things operated, but um, th that, that is my understanding of roughly how it did. Um, and you yourself, you were kidnapped, right? You were held ransom by Somali pirates whilst reporting. Um, tell us about that, if you can. Oh, yeah, this was back in 2008. I was working for the Sunday Telegraph at the time on the foreign desk. I was a, um, one of their London-based foreign correspondents, you know, basically just 
traveling around the world covering different uh, different stories um so when the piracy crisis started um one of the in about october 2008 or so um uh that the pirates hijacked a uh, a big saudi oil tanker brand new oil tanker um worth 100 million dollars carrying 150 million dollars million dollars worth of oil also had two brits on board who were crew members so th this was a big story it was like the equivalent of you know sort of um pirates back in the elizabethan times hijacking a you know a spanish galleon full of gold or something like that you know mm. it, was a, it was kind of treasures beyond the pirates wildest dreams so at that point the office said to me can you go to somalia and um do a bit of reporting um on the ground you know just to get an idea of how the pirates operated and you know and also what the local people thought of them um i'd been to somalia once before to mogadishu which is in the sort of south central somalia not the bit that the pirates were operating in that's more in the north but um that that kind of qualified me as the op the sort of office expert on somalia just having been there the once it wasn't a place that people went to very often um, and um, so off we went. And you, you, we went to a town called Basasa, which is on the northern coast, uh, which was where the piracy was operating. Um, uh, you can actually fly, you can fly to Basasa from Djibouti and Dubai and places like that. But it, it's, it's a pretty um, rundown place. Um, you know, it, it, it's not just um, the, 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 the piracy, you don't actually see pirates operating openly in Basasso, um, but you see a lot of evidence of pirate money. You see sort of brand new villas going up and people cruising around in, you know, SUVs. It's a bit like going to some place where there's a lot of drug trafficking going on. You know, you, you don't see the, the trade openly, but you sort of see the telltale signs. A bit of a vibe. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, so, so, so we went there. Um, the, it, the, there's, there's not just piracy going on there. There's, there's all sorts of other maritime criminality as well. People trafficking, mm. arms trafficking, all sorts of other stuff. Um, and um, obviously, the, the, but by that stage, the piracy was already kind of in, you know, in full swing. And it, one of the unfortunate side effects was that, you know, the piracy was essentially a, a kidnapping epidemic at sea. But that kidnapping ethos was also spreading to the land. So, um, uh, you know, as a foreigner, you were in Basasi, you were an automatic potential target for kidnapping. Um, so what people used to do would be to hire armed bodyguards, um, local people. Um, you'd usually hire five or six of them, um, just guys with guns. And pretty much everybody did that. It didn't matter whether you were, you know, a journalist, businessman, aid worker, pretty much everybody. We used to just hire, um, you know, a few blokes with guns um, to, you know, to sort of ostensibly protect you from kidnapping. Now, th th these are not sort of the kind of bodyguards who are going to lay their lives down for you. You know, they're usually your interpreters, friends or cousins or cousins, friends or something like that. Um, you pay them about 20 bucks a day each and they each have a Kalashnikov and they travel in a, a vehicle, you know, that follows yours. Um, and, you know, it, the, the, the reason for paying them really is they're essentially kind of scarecrows, if you like, you know, it's yeah. to make people think twice um, about, um, you know, about kidnapping you. Uh, 
it, it, it also if you don't uh, if you try and opt not for having um, armed bodyguards, then something is more likely to happen to you as well. It's a bit like protection money. Or if you've ever been to a football ground where you get a kid saying, can I mind your car for you, mister? It used to be an old scam when I was young. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it's that kind of thing. If you don't pay the kid to mind your car for you, you'll find your car gets scratched later on. Um, so we had a group of these bodyguards um, and we were in Bursasa for about a week. Uh, the bodyguards had been hired by um, the local fixer that we had. Um, uh, then on the very last day, that we were there, um, uh, the bodyguards got changed. We got a different bunch and we didn't really think anything of it um, because the uh, we, we'd been having some problems with the previous set. They hadn't been turning up on time and stuff. Um, and um, uh, we headed to the airport that day. There was my colleague and I, Jose, who was a photographer from Spain, who was with me, a freelance photographer, um, we were in one pickup truck and the bodyguards um, were in the other, um, uh, about seven of them. We were driving through the outskirts of Basasso, this town, and then all of a sudden the uh, bodyguards pickup truck shot in front of ours and the bodyguards all jumped out, um, started waving their guns and shouting. And um, uh, because they were shouting in Somalia, I didn't understand what was going on at first. I thought maybe they were just having a bit of a row about which route to go or something like that and being rather voluble. But um, then they uh, they ran up to the car doors, jerked the car doors open, ordered us out at gunpoint um, and, uh, you know, sort of started pushing us. And um, I suddenly thought, oh, shit, we are getting kidnapped. Um, and it, it literally was like that. It's just this sort of sudden realisation. Yeah. Fucking hell, um, yeah. this, is, this has been planned all along by the people who have been looking after us. Jesus Christ, you know. Uh, and then they um, they opened the boot of the car and told us to get our stuff out, you know, and gestured at us to get into the uh, into their vehicle uh, instead. Um, at the time, we were in a, a sort of a, a built-up area. There was, you know, um, a sort of suburb of Basasso. And, you know, with, with hindsight, part of me thinks that if I tried to sort of create a commotion or something or made a run for it, you could have, you know, um, attracted a crowd of people and maybe the bodyguard, you know, the kidnappers would have lost their nerve. But, you know, basically for me anyway, that the moment someone's got a gun pointed at your stomach, you're just like, nope, okay, you tell me, I'll, I'll do whatever you oh, say. You don't mess you know? about, yeah. Yeah, and they could have said, can you change this tire as well or pump the tires up on the, the, on the car because they're a bit flat. I'd have been, yeah, whatever, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, they, they bundled us into their vehicle and um, then we drove off out of town um, at sort of top speed and then into a sort of desert area just outside of, the, uh, outside of town. And I, I remember we were sort of, it was, it was full of sand dunes, really, really hilly. Um, and, uh, but I remember that the, the driver sort of driving over them like a rally, you know, a, a kind of rally pace and boy, that, you know, this guy could really drive. I remember thinking like, fucking hell, you know, if I tried to drive like that, I'd be all over the shop. And, um, you know, uh, we had one kidnapper sat in the back and, um, I remember thinking like, shall I try and, you know, sh now is the time to do something before we get too far from town. Should I try and lean forward and sort of grab the wheel so the car turns over and, you know, they all get out slightly dazed and then we run off and then you think, no, that's that's just fantasy stuff. Yeah, that's just um, Tintin, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or the A-team yeah. or something like that, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, 
And um, so, you know, off we went to this sort of set of mountains. Um, uh, we, we probably drove for about three quarters of an hour and um, then up into this um, mountain canyon. And uh, they, we got to a point where the car could drive no further. They uh, jumped us out of the car and then we started walking up this mountain track. And um, uh, that was sort of where our kind of kidnapping kind of experience began, really. And how do they treat you then? Well, they, um, we were, at this point, we didn't really know what they were, you know, why we, they were kidnapping us or anything like that, or, or even if that was the intention. We got about halfway up this track. We came to this clearing and they suddenly stopped. And I suddenly thought, well, shit, you know, I'm assuming these guys are just, you know, kidnapping us. But what if this is like some sort of terrorist group and this is a sort of execution, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, and then one of them sort of dug in his bag and uh, pulled out some Mars bars and some water. And he kind of gestured at us, said, oh, eat, drink or whatever. I said, it was like a scoutmaster or something on a school, on a scout trip. Um, and then we suddenly realized, well, they obviously want to keep so um, uh, we then basically walked we, we were sort of route marched flat solid uh, getting very tired those caves where they kept us for the next six weeks um and generally speaking they treated us okay um uh they you know um the the, the they didn't try and sort of torture us or anything like that um, but obviously, it's it, it's a it's a very sort of frightening experience. I mean, not least of all because we were stuck. You know, it was in Somalia, and you're sort of thinking like, how on earth is anybody going to get us out? You know, the nearest there's no government here. There's no you know, there's no foreign troops like there are in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, the nearest British embassy is in Kenya, fifteen hundred miles away. You, you know, you, you feel like you might as well be on another planet. Mm. Yeah, that sounds scary. You said six weeks they held you for. Yeah, I mean, they, they demanded money. Um, about five days in, um, they took us up to the top of a, uh, a mountain, made a mobile phone call to my office at the Telegraph, and um, they said, uh, right, we want $3 million for you and $3 million for your, uh, uh, your fellow hostage, a Spanish guy. Um, uh, and I remember thinking, that's quite a lot of money for someone like me, you know. Um, but, um, uh, it, but, I mean, in a sense, it was a relief because I, I'd, I'd previously worked in Iraq a lot um, uh, where, you know, if you got kidnapped, there was a high likelihood that they would um, make some political demand that they knew yeah. was going to be impossible to, for the British government to meet, like, you know, withdrawal troops tomorrow or something like that. Um, and, you know, if that demand was not met, then you would be beheaded. And we saw that happen numerous times in, uh, uh, in Iraq. Um, so, you know, for them just to be asking for money was a big relief. Um, uh, the office said no. The Telegraph said no. We don't want to pay money. It's you know it, it's you know we, we don't think it's appropriate um, for journalists to be kidnapped in the first place. And they did their best to try and secure our release through sort of diplomatic means and through sort of trying to bring pressure on you know local clan chiefs and. Um, religious leaders and so on saying look it's bad for your country um and the image of your country if um any foreigner who goes there gets kidnapped 
it will mean that aid workers and investors and all sorts of other people will stay away. Um, I do not know um, exactly what the circumstances were of uh, that led to our release. Um, uh, the the office appointed a you know an outside team of professional negotiators, and you know that that they one of the conditions of their you know that they set is that you know do not disclose any details of how we work. It's like playing a game of poker, very high stakes poker for people's lives. Um, and what you do is you you always show a poker face, and one thing you never do is give away you know your tactics or the hand that you play. Um, but what I do know is that yeah, we were released after only six weeks, which by Somali standards is not long. Um, uh, I know of other hostages who have been held there for a year, two years, three years, even and sometimes longer than that. So we got off pretty damn lucky, really. Yeah, that sounds like quite an experience. Um, before we go, um, tell us about this this new book you've got out, Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea. Yeah, well, I was just saying we got off luckily. Um, other people did not. And um, after, um, you know, my experience of being held hostage and stuff, I, I kept a close eye on the piracy story. And uh, it, it gradually became clear that... Um, uh, while most ships were ransomed out after a bit, there was a few that, that weren't. Um, three ships in particular um, that were all ended up being stuck for, you know, three, four, and even five years in captivity. And um, I remember sort of following the progress of, you know, the, the various hijackings, and uh, it became clear that these ships had been stuck there for years on end. And uh, I, I sort of did some research on why this was because it, it wasn't really in the public domain very much because ship owners never comment publicly on you know on the progress of ransom negotiations but it became apparent after a while that um, none of the owners of these three ships had um kidnap and ransom insurance and therefore they couldn't pay the ransoms that the pirates were asking for um which was uh, and as a result these ships just you know, languished there. You might expect that the, you know, the, I think the owners hoped that the pirates would eventually just get fed up and let these guys, let the hostages go. But that is not what Somali pirates do. You know, there's not much money in that country, and once they've got what they think is going to be a jackpot, they don't lightly let, they don't lightly give it up. Um, uh, to make matters worse for these particular hostages, the pirates assumed that when the owners told them they didn't have any money. The, the, they thought that was just a, a kind of negotiating tactic on the part of the owner, a rather callous negotiating tactic. And so they kind of responded in kind. They started torturing all the crews to, you know, try and increase the pressure on the owners. And, um, you know, in some cases, you know, on, on one ship, uh, one, one sailor was executed, shot dead in cold blood. Uh, on uh, you know, and the, the rest of his you know his fellow crewmates were you know just tortured relentlessly over periods of months, you know all sorts of horror, horrific stuff going on. Um, on another ship, they put them on starvation diets, so six of the crew starved to death. Basically, they got a um, a, uh, a a vitamin deficiency condition called beriberi, which makes your, your limbs swell up. Um, hideously and then eventually stops your heart working 
so yeah, you, you had these guys. Uh, I think all, all, in all, about forty-five, fifty seafarers stuck in this fashion on three different ships, none of whose owners could pay, and you know nothing was happening. Um, the um, you know the owners weren't getting them out. The governments weren't doing anything. They're mainly governments from very poor countries like Cambodia, um, uh, Bangladesh, places like that, where you know the governments don't have much capacity. And there was no naval force coming in to get them out either. Um, the British and American navies had special forces in the area that did occasionally do um, rescues of host, you know, ships held hostage at sea, but they would only generally do them for their own, you know, their own citizens because the risk to the soldiers uh, as well as the, you know, the hostages was too high. Um, and eventually, a um, uh, a, a, a former British army officer, a guy called John Steed, who used to be the military attaché in Nairobi, um, who was working for the UN on counter-piracy issues at the time, he became aware of these three ships' plight, um, and uh, he took it upon himself, really, you know, basically because nobody else was doing anything, um, to, to free them. And initially his hope was that he would just uh, try and get some aid packages through the offices of the UN to these various ships and med medicines and so on, relief supplies, and eventually build up a rapport with the pirates to then, so that he could then turn the conversation to look, you know, these guys, there's no ransom money for them. Why don't you just, you know, let them go, do the decent thing? And unfortunately, the pirates said, well, no, sorry, we can't do that because we are in debt ourselves. And they had, because they've been looking after these ships for so long, paying teams of 20 gunmen, maybe, you know, uh, $10 a day each to look after them. After three years, that, that debt ran into hundreds of thousands of dollars, which they owed to other pirate clans, you know, didn't just owe it to sort of some high street bank manager. And they said, look, you know, we'd love, we'd be happy to give these guys, let these guys go for free, but we need a ransom because, uh, you know, we're in debt ourselves now. And so this guy, John Steed, he um, raised money um, privately um, to get these uh, to, to, to get these uh, ships freed, um, which was not as easy as you might expect. Um, you might think that there's a sort of Sir Richard Branson type, some billionaire philanthropist who would step in and just write a check. But most philanthropists don't want to get involved in paying ransoms. It's, it's you know, bad for the image. Nobody likes to be seen to be writing checks for criminals. So he had to raise the money himself. It took a long time, but he, he did eventually do it. Uh, and thanks to his efforts, um, three ships crews of you know about fifty host fifty hostages in total are you know now um, walking around as free men when they uh, you know might otherwise you know still be stuck there. Right, and he managed to um, save these people. Right, what kind of operation was that like? Well, first of all, he had to negotiate sort of a, a price you know for the for the hostages. Uh, and what he did was quite cleverly. He said, well, look, you know, I can't pay the, you know, the multi-million dollar ransoms that you're asking for, but you've talked about running up some expenses of a few hundred thousand dollars. What if I pay your expenses? Um, and, and that served a couple of purposes. That meant he could sort of try and kind of say to would-be donors, like, I'm not really after a ransom. This is just to pay the pirates' expenses and get them off uh, 
um, you know, uh, and, and get them to agree to release the hostages. Um, and it also meant he could barter them down to a much more realistic sum. Uh, but it, it was still very difficult raising the money. Um, and at one point, um, he, you know, uh, he was contacted by this guy, uh, a, a German sea captain, who was offering to um, provide him with about $900,000 um, uh, from a German seafarers union. Um, that, um, that meant John thought he, you know, he, had, he had enough to strike a deal with one of the ships. Um, so he went, ahead, went as far as striking a deal for the hostages for about $900,000 or so. Um, then went back to the sea captain to ask him for the money, actually to get the cash transferred. Um, and at that point, uh, you know, the, the sea captain kept off on offering excuses. And eventually it transpired this guy was, um, you know, was not a sea captain at all. He was some sort of con man. And what he was hoping for, he, he managed to get some emails and various paperwork off John. What he was hoping to do was go around himself with some of the paperwork from the, the hostage rescue mission to various people saying, hey, look, I'm collecting money for this uh, on behalf of this guy. And then presumably was planning just to pocket the money himself. Um, John eventually found out about that just a, you know very shortly before he was due to press ahead with the, the deal. And suddenly he's in a position where he's got no money at all. And he had to break the news to the pirates, uh, well, A, to the hostages that they, you know, they weren't going to be able to go home, and also to the pirates that there was going to be no deal. And this was a group of pirates who had already executed a hostage when the owner of the ship had failed to pay up and tortured lots of others. So he thought, Jesus Christ, you know, um, if I tell them that I've not got the money, you know, how many other people are they going to kill? Um, and um, he had no choice but to be honest with them. And actually, luckily, he, when he went to them, he said, look, I've, I'm sorry, but I've been conned. And somewhat there is surprise. I mean, they were angry, but they understood that because apparently in, in their world, in the world of Somali pirates and criminals, con men are a, a kind of an occupational hazard. So mm. I think they kind of went, oh, yeah, all right, fair enough. We, we can understand that. Whereas if he'd said uh, the money's been held up because of banking regulations in London or something like that, if he'd lied, they'd have, you know, that's not something <laughs> they had an experience of. They'd have said, no, nah, you're lying, mate, you know. But a con man, it's like, yeah, yeah, we, we can see that. They still gave the crew a roughing up, but mm. they didn't kill any others. And th that was something that, you know, he was absolutely terrified about because, uh, you know, he, he was doing this mission on, off his own bat. He was not a trained hostage negotiator. And there was quite a lot of people saying, look, you know, this is not a job for amateurs. You want to be very careful here because... Once you get into hostage negotiation, once you start talking money with people like pirates, you're talking their game. And that is the moment at which they start playing with their tactics and sort of saying, like, if, if, if you're not offering them enough money they or the money they want, that's when they start torturing people. That's when people start getting killed. So, you know, if you go down that route, you are going down the route where you may end up with a situation where because of something you did or said, these pirates who are pretty excitable at the best of times anyway, um, start killing people. And then that's on your conscience. And on this occasion, he thought, you know, they, they might end up killing people because, um, uh, simply because of something he had said. 
Uh, sorry, simply because he had um, he, he'd not been able to come up with the money. So you know, it's, it's a, a big responsibility, uh, you know, to take on. Um, and then uh, eventually, on that occasion, he didn't have, um, you know, he, he he didn't have anything like the money he needed um, after this, you know, uh, German fella failed to deliver the goods. So he had about two hundred thousand um, dollars. The, uh, the 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 negotiate the pirates wanted far more than that, um, and eventually um, they hatched he hatched a deal with the lead pirate on the ship, uh, who was also fed up by this time after about three years, um, and he said, "Look, if you can stage an escape, um, I will pay you the entire all the money I've got two hundred thousand um, dollars." But you need to stage an escape so that the you know the rest of the, ho the hostages can go, um, and just cut the rest of the gang out of the deal, and um, that that is basically what they did. So he went down the route of basically agreeing with one pirate to rip off a whole lot of other pirates, which I, I, you know is certainly a gamble and, and not out of the kind of hostage negotiators you know rule book as you might say. Yeah, that sounds like a very wild story. Um, where can people get this book and get in contact with you and stuff like that? Uh, it's called Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, the mission to rescue the hostages the world forgot. Um, and it's um, uh, by uh, Icon Books. It's sixteen ninety nine. That's the hardback. But if, uh, there's a paperback coming out next year that's uh, a lot cheaper. And where can people find you online on Twitter or wherever like that? Best reach via Twitter on uh, Colin Freeman ninety nine, and then I also write um, occasionally, or still, you know, for the Telegraph quite a bit. And um, I have a, a, a web page as well. It's um, uh, just um, my, my own blog. The link to it is on my uh, Twitter feed. Okay, mate. Thank you very much. That was really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, listen. Take care, mate. That was Colin Freeman speaking about modern-day armed piracy on the seas and all that that entails. Definitely check his book out. It's very interesting. Uh, if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. There's loads of bonus episodes there. There are about two a month. I think we've got almost 100 bonus episodes now. So there's a lot of stuff there for you waiting um, also, you get uh, regular episodes early, access to the community discord, merchandise, um, discount codes, narrated articles, uh, access to the uh, Too Cool for J School series, and we will be doing another docu, well, I don't want to say documentary series, we're going to be doing a series soon, coming to the Patreon, which will basically be um, kind of looking into some of the world's most obscure militant groups it'd be kind of a graph graphic led thing um but yeah that'll be coming to the patreon patreon.com slash popular front thank you very much to our sponsors on this episode uh they are oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa an independent coffee business selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest bond avenue 97239 be sure to tell them popular front sent you um thank you to grind core house a pair of independent coffee shops in philadelphia usa one in south one in west find them on socials at grind core house the episode's also sponsored by propagandopolis an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world 
by Prince at Propagandopolis.com. Use the promo code POPULARFRONT10 for 10% off. And check out the uh, limited run of Popular Front prints that are up there. Some of our um, photo work from uh, across various different conflict zones. Propagandopolis.com If you want to follow us on social media, Twitter is at PopularFrontCO. Instagram uh, at popular.front youtube uh youtube.com slash popular front the website popularfront.co merchandise popularfront.shop if you want to follow me anywhere it's at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n same as my website jakehanrahan.com you can get in touch uh that way uh, music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black. Thank you very much to our high tier Patreons. They are Elise Middlefer, Jess, David McManus, Joachim Williamson Holt, Yode Travis, Tom Petrie, James Leons, Kate Ellen, Dan Ross, Thumper, Lisa Milgram, Bradley Davies, uh, Brendan Crave, Peter Hesher, RX, A. Nicole, Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50 Seattle, MJ, Meredith Waters, Adam H, Larson8669, Karante, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Jacob, Michael O'Connor, Zach Picard, Tom, Todd Cravens, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froes, James Cully, Tynan Daly, Ethan, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Clayton Taylor, Mike Barone, Ben, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, uh, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Noah Ease, Christina Rovetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, uh, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Anthony Kabarak, Dan Dunham, Fletcher, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvanek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Moritz Zumbul. Thank you all very much. If you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash popularfront or popularfront.co slash support.